As we turn to the scriptures this morning, if you would turn to Romans 8, I'd encourage you if you have a pew Bible and would like to turn to that, it's on page 1201. As we looked last week, we saw that the whole creation, including us, is groaning because things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're not the way God created them. But because of sin, uh, we live in a fallen world. And yet, there's a great hope that God is in the process of redeeming his whole creation and redeeming us. And we have that great hope that that is in process right now. So that takes us to verse 26 in Romans 8. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. I just want to answer one question in the time that we have. And the question is simply this. What is man that God is mindful of us? Why does, why does God care? Paul's answer to that question is found in verse 28 when he says that he works all things for good. It's un, unfortunate that, the, that some manuscripts... Uh, uh, left out the article that is there. And I, I don't want to make too much out of the article except in this context. We struggle with what is good. If God's working all of the hard things in my life and all the good things in my life toward an end, toward a solution, that God is actually involved in my life and he calls it good, what is it? Well, that's why in a lot of the manuscripts of of Romans, and particularly the older ones, it has the article, the. And so it would be okay to translate it that God is working all things for the good. And therefore, it presupposes that there's a good, that God is, or an end to which God is working. And so that's what we are looking at. And the reason that that's even possible is because of what we looked at last week. And I'm, and I'm sorry if you weren't here, you can uh, go online and you can listen to that one. But Paul is making the argument that God is not a clock master who uh, created everything and then stood back and hoped it all would work out. But instead, he has been working a plan that literally everything and everyone... In every place, he promises to make new. That after the last person who will ever call upon to the name of the Lord, calls upon the name of the Lord, he will look at his son and he's going to say, go and make all things new. And what that means is that everything is going to get better. 
so much better. The only way that we know how to describe it from our vantage point is to say that it's new. It won't be brand new in the sense of it, it didn't exist and now it does exist. It's taking what is existing and making it so much better because every place, every person, and everything is broken. And broken beyond our ability to repair. That's Paul's point. So we need Jesus to come and to fix this mess. And so what we have now in our passage, in our text, is Paul going from the cosmic to the personal. He's going to say what that looks like, the good for you. And really, let's just look at these three big ideas, and that is that we are in a mess. And that's not really debatable. We might argue about how we got into the mess, but there's no debate that humanity in this world is a mess. And then secondly, what, what is it that God is doing? Is he doing anything? Does he have a plan? And then last, what will the outcome be? What will be the end of all this work? And so let's look at the mess a little bit. The way Paul describes our mess, how we got into this mess, or, or the best descriptor of this mess. I'm sorry for this palm tree just right there. At least over here, that's a pro- it, it's always a po- problem over here if there's something I can't see too well. But look at it as grace for you. Can't say anything for you guys. Paul says in verse 26... The Spirit helps us in what? Our weakness. The way that Paul describes the condition of human condition in the world is one of weakness. And we don't like that. We don't like to be thought of as weak or to be weak, much less thought of weak. But I think it's important that Paul's starting point of making this cosmic, making all things new, God's plan, personal, is that we have to start where we are. And Paul's descriptive of a human condition is one of weakness. And that stands in contrast to typically how the world looks at the human condition. That is, the Enlightenment, which was a a movement that followed the Reformation almost as a counter-Reformation. I know there really was a counter-Reformation, so I'm not mixing my history here. I'm just saying the Enlightenment, in a lot of ways, is a reaction to the Reformation, where there was a rediscovery of the sovereignty of God in the salvation of our world, specifically in his people. The Enlightenment that being able to see that man, yes, we're willing to admit, is the cause of the problem, but man is also the solution to man's problem. And so the, the end of that movement is where we are experiencing now, which is often called postmodernism. It's the death of the Enlightenment, that it really didn't take us where we thought it would take us. And one of the documents that came out of the 20th century about this movement of enlightenment, that man is not just the problem, he's the solution, was 150 of the greatest thinkers in the world got together and they wrote a document that they all signed called the Humanist Manifesto, 1973. And this is how they described the human condition. They said, we have virtually conquered the planet. Don't you love it? Explored the moon, overcome the natural limits of travel and communication. We stand at the dawn of a new age. This is where I expect the age of Aquarius going on in the background. 
by using technology wisely, I'm not really mocking them. I'm, I'm able to stand four decades later and look back and say, if, if they were here, they would see the, the emptiness of these words. By using our technology wisely, we can control our environment, conquer poverty, modify human behavior, alter the course of human evolution uh, and cultural development, and provide humankind with an unparalleled opportunity for achieving an abundant and meaningful life. And they called that the brave new world. Here's the question. When you read the Humanist Manifesto, it's a much longer document than this. I just pulled an excerpt out of the Vera. The question is, how are we doing? If that's the roadmap, if that's the declaration of independence of human condition, how are we doing? Are we getting there? Are we approaching it? Another way to ask the question is this. Have we been able to control the environment? Well, Ask the people in North Carolina or Houston or places that have experienced tsunamis, hurricanes and tornadoes. Not so much. In fact, if we've been able to control our environment, we're not controlling it well. How about, have we been able to end poverty? In the United States, it's hard to get our mind around it that, that most people, the average person in the world lives on less than $2.50 a day. Just understand in proportion that that's less than a cappuccino from Bean Rush. That's what they're living off of. Are we behaving better? Has racism and discrimination come to an end in the world? And some would say, but we've made such progress. Those institutions, Jim Crow laws, they're all gone. Yes, we have dismantled many institutions that were racist and discriminated. But I love Duke Kwan, who's a PCA pastor in D.C. He says, sinful ideas outlast sinful institutions. Don't confuse the dismantling of the latter for the dismantling of the former. Just because we get rid of the institutions does not mean we've changed the human heart or the human condition. The bottom line is, are things getting better? Have we diminished the death rate even one percentage point? Not one. Have we been able to give all people an abundant and meaningful life? The evidence proves the contrary, that we have not made progress with the human condition. Why? Because we are weak. We are not the solution to man's problem. Even those great thinkers who signed that document, we saw before they left this planet the cracks of their own desire and ambition. Aldous Huxley, who, who wrote The Brave New World, at the very end of his life, he wrote this, maybe this world is another planet's hell. He began to see that there was no progress in the human manifesto, and so he said, okay, if we're not heaven, maybe we're hell. Or you think of H.G. Wells, who began with such optimism about the human condition that by the end of it, he was in total despair about humanity. One of the 
concerns that I have is that this idea of a false optimism about humanity has come into the life of the church and as a result has stolen the gospel out from under our hearts. That somehow humanity can solve its greatest problems and certainly our problem with God. Christianity Today, and I love that Ruth was able to do even more research than I did. When I wrote this first slide, it's gone now. She's replaced it with her slide, which is so much better. Christianity Today in 2018 declared that 2017 was the worst year for Christians in human history. 215 million Christians were persecuted in the world, and many of them lost their lives. Well, Christianity Today, January 2019 declared that 2018 is the worst year for Christians. It's not that things are getting better and better. Things are literally getting worse. Particularly for those who call upon the name of the Lord. And the problem for those of us who live in the land of the free and the home of the brave is that not only has it not enabled us to escape death, but it has also created a false optimism that if everybody were just like us, They could have a meaningful and abundant life. Contrast that with Paul. Paul said in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, here's the kicker, that you should also suffer for his sake. What an incredible verse. That not only are, it, has God ordained that you would believe in him, but that you would also suffer for him. What is, makes that verse so incredible is where Paul is when he writes that verse. Philippians is a, a group of the epistles, letters that Paul writes from prison. It's a prison epistle. Paul has found joy in prison. How in the world can you find joy why you suffer with whatever you suffer today, much less what Paul is experiencing in prison, which brings us to the second point. It is because that God is at work in the midst of the mess. If all God was doing was recognizing that we had a mess and getting us to see the mess, that's not enough. We need a rescuer. We need someone from outside to come inside to save us. When you're drowning in the pool, for you to save yourself is impossible. You need someone that's sitting outside the pool to come into the pool to save you. Romans 8:28 says, "And we know that those for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose." Purpose. God has a plan. That includes the things that you and I are going through right now. That's a tremendous, encouraging, and supportive, and illuminating, comforting verse. But it should come with a caution. Here's the caution to Romans 8, 28. Thou shall not quote it to your suffering friend. We are to think deeply about this verse when we are not suffering so that we are comforted when we are suffering. 
The time to think about Romans 8.28 is when you are not going through the hard things of life. When your life is not what appears to you hopeless. So that when it does come, and it comes to everyone, you are comforted. The truth that Paul is willing to admit here and that we need to admit to ourselves is we don't always know why. We may never know why. I don't know why we think that what God is going to do one day when we all die is spend all of eternity answering all of our questions, why? You ever notice that when the twins were about three years old, that seemed to be their greatest and most often asked question, why? And then when you give an answer, why? God is not going to sit upon his throne and and we've got this incredibly long line of Christians and say, why did my child die? Why did I lose my job and therefore my house and my comfort and security? Why did that happen? God is not going to sit upon his throne and answer our questions, why? Because it never has been about us and neither will heaven. We don't always know. We know that everything that is happening to us, both good and bad, everything that God allows is necessary. And that nothing that he withholds from us or we lose was. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. Is that not encouraging to know that when we're facing hard things and the only thing that we can think is, please stop it. Relieve the pain. Stop the hurt. That's all that we can pray. Isn't it comforting to know that there's a being in the cosmos that's praying for you and praying according to the plan? You know what that means. That sometimes what we are going through What you are currently experiencing is part of the plan and part of the plan is not for it to end now. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not even the day after that. So it's good to know that when all we can do is groan for it stopping, that the Holy Spirit who knows what we need most is praying for us. This spirit who searches our hearts, who knows what's going on, knows the plan and what's going on in our hearts. What we know is that we don't know. But what we do know is that God knows. Because it is his plan. He's got the big picture. He's working all things together for the good. We know that God even uses the bad things that happen to us and some of the terrible things that has happened to you. Not because he did it. He's not responsible for one evil thing that happens, but he even takes that, those evil things and does something with them for the purpose to work the good. 
We know that's true because we know the story of Joseph whose, whose brothers were so jealous that they sold him into bondage and he goes down to Egypt and there he's a servant in Potiphar's house and, and it's from there he gets accused and put into prison and it's there he's discovered as a, as a man after God's own heart and, and he becomes the prime minister not just to save Egypt but the very brothers who put him there. And he, and he makes the great statement, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He's able to see the big picture to the, to the limited degree that Joseph could see it at that moment. One of my favorite stories is I arrived in, in South Africa just as uh, Nelson Mandela was getting out of prison on Robben Island after 27 years. He went in in 1962 simply because he demanded that a majority, 85% uh, uh, black uh, community have a right to vote against the 15% minority white community. And he spent 27 years for that. And when he came out, rather than being bitter, rather than trying to put de Klerk and all of his cronies in prison and taking all of the land from all of the white people, he said, these are our partners, not our enemy. And he went to his friend, Desmond Tutu, and he said, uh, Desmond, I need you to set up a racial reconciliation commission. And here's what we'll do. This is an amazing. I got to see one of these uh, a little bit later in 1994. Literally on one side of the room, they were in churches often because those were places that you could have a big enough room. But on one side were the families that these atrocities were committed to terrorize uh, uh, black people in South Africa. And on the other side were the cops, the military, the government officials who had committed these atrocities. And what Desmond Trudeau said, as long as you are willing to admit, as long as you are able to confess what you had done, what you had done with the bodies, what you had done to the families, then we'll ask the families to forgive you and no prison. If you lie, if you obfuscate, if you begin to diminish, then yes, we'll prosecute you to the fullest of the extent of the law. It is amazing. Thousands upon thousands of police and military and government officials stood before the families of the people that they murdered and said, this is what I had done. He brought an amazing healing to that nation. What, what was meant for evil became such a source of good. Do you realize that South Africa is the only nation on the African continent that went from a majority, uh, uh, no, minority white governing to a majority black governing without a revolution? Only one. God is working a plan. He's in the middle of the mess and he's got something he's doing. Well, the natural question is then, what is he doing? What's the end? What's the... What's the goal? What's the, what's the outcome? What is he accomplishing in the Mass? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among the brothers. The word that we get, the word prognosis, is the word foreknew, the idea of a future outlook of health. Predestined is not a Presbyterian word. It's a biblical word. It's not just a word that Calvin threw around. It's something that Paul threw around and said that God ordained his people to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the plan. That's the outcome. That's what's coming from the mess. This is what God is doing in the world. He's making us into something beautiful. 
into the image of his son. Paul uses the past tense here. Why? He's speaking of something that's going to happen in the future. That's what he means. Look, he does it again in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. All past tense. He's talking about something that's going to happen in the future. And he says, it's as if it's already happened. Because it has in the mind of God. Don't miss that. Paul is able to talk about a future event in the past tense because God is already there. That's what we mean, theologians mean by omnipresence. Not just simply that God is everywhere, but God is at every point of history. He was there before the foundation of the world when he made all of this in his mind. He was there when our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, turned and said, we love what you've done with the place, but we want more. We want what you have. We want to be God. God was there when, when Cain was jealous of his brother Abel and murdered him. Not because it was happening, he did it before it happened. Because God is the Alpha and the Omega, and he's every point in between. The Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last. And what he's saying, I am at the beginning, I'm at the end, and I'm every point in between, all at the same time, right now. And because God is at the end, where we have all been made into the image of God, Paul will talk about it like it has already happened, because it has in the mind of God. And that's why it's so sure that even though everything looks like the humanist manifesto will never happen, it will happen because not of man, but because of God. He's making all things new. What will that future be like? Not like the manifesto said. Instead, we will be without sin In this present world, we'll have no scars, no mars, no effects of the fall. And plus, your entire potential will be realized. And I don't mean that in a new agey kind of way. I just, in the way in which Paul meant it here in verse 28, when he says, Christ, that's what he means by he, might be the firstborn among many brothers. What's he drawing our minds to? He's drawing us to the resurrected Christ after he died. He was raised from the dead and he wasn't quite like he was when he, before his death. That literally they did not recognize him when they first saw him and he was able to do things that he didn't do. He had more capacity than he had in the 33 years he was on the earth. And that will be us. We are going to be a fuller being than we were before the fall. A fuller being before we died. Scientists estimate that the human brain's capacity for data is around a two and a half petabytes. Okay, that means nothing to you because it didn't mean anything to me. That's two and, a, two and a half million gigabytes. Your little phone probably has about, a uh, smartphone has about eight. There's two and a half million gigabytes running around up in there that it can store. Just to give you an idea what that means, if you take all of the syllabi that has ever been written, of every course that has ever been taught at all of the Ivy League universities, all eight of them in the United States, 
And then on top of it, you used all of the syllabi of all the courses that have ever been taught at the University of Maryland, UMBC, the Naval Academy, throw in AACC and uh, St. John's. If you threw them, it still would be a fraction of your capacity to store information. And that's going to be unleashed in the new heavens and the new earth. Imagine your entire subconscious being conscience. Imagine the enjoyment of work without frustration. What do you look forward to most about the new heavens and the new earth? Where even the mundane things will be glorious. Last week I ended by quoting C.S. Lewis, so I'm going to do it again. This time, instead of from the Chronicles, from mere Christianity, he writes this about our future, what God, the end will be. God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through which such energy and joy, wisdom and love, as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in part very painful. But that is what we are in for and nothing less. God meant that what he said when he said, I am working everything for the good to conform you to the image of my beautiful son. That's where we're going. And I, I beg you to do two things. One, if you're discouraged today, you barely scraped your body out of bed and came here, think about this. This is where you're going. That all of this that's hard for you, that ultimately... It is for the good of conforming you to the image of his son, that beautiful son of his. And then for the rest of us that we're not there yet, may we respond to this like John responded to the revelation. You know, typically when someone studies the book of Revelation, they get to the end and, and they think, man, this is, this is great. I'm going to open my newspaper and watch the news and see how it all fits together when that's not the response we're supposed to have. John's response after the revelation has been given is, Lord, come quickly. Do we Christians pray? I think we hold on to this broken world so dearly that we don't long for what he will make us be in the future. Lord, come quickly. Because then all of what we are going through will be done because his work will be done and we will be made new. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this reality that we have needed. We knew from the beginning that you were not going to leave this world like this. But we feel in light of history and the things that are going on in our lives, so, so infinitely small, out of control, in some cases hopeless. We thank you that you have not sat back and hoped that we would figure it out, that man will be the solution to man's problem.
but you sent us your son. And that in he has entered into our mess and is at work. Superseding all the evil that we have done and all the good things to make all things new. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that Jesus comes back quickly, that our children may not know a day what it means to be a grown-up with grown-up problems. That they might know a day when there are no grown-up problems. Where everyone has tasted the sweetness of the flower that started as the bud and it was bitter. We pray in Jesus' name.